Well, I want to say it's a very great joy to be back with you in Windsor again. The last time I was here, I don't remember the church being quite so packed. And uh, as Paul says, it's a, it's a nice problem to have, but I suppose it, it does become a bit of a bind after a while. But it's great to see so many of you here today. Uh, on this, what I, I imagine is the kind of recommencement of what's dreadfully sometimes called the winter's work. Well, it doesn't feel like winter today, but uh, you know what I mean by that. So lovely to be here. Uh, I've learned uh, a couple of things already uh, this morning. The first is a little bit about astronomy. And uh, I'd just like to say to our brother, if you need a chaplain to go with you to Hawaii to inspect the telescope, I, I, I'd love to be that chaplain. And the, the other thing is uh, I, I learned what a s'more is. I'd never heard of a s'more before. And so I checked with Drew, and he tells me it's... Uh, many people know what a s'more is. Yeah, yeah, quite a few. A s'more apparently is a marshmallow toasted and placed between two digest, chocolate digestive biscuits. And I, I was, this is how you get distracted in a service, of course. I've been thinking about this, you know. I, I, well, I, I was listening to Paul as well, but I was thinking... S-M-O-R-E, what, and I'm thinking acrostic, but I, I, I've come to the conclusion it's really just you want more of them. Is that right? Yeah? So uh, whenever that's happening, I might just drop in. So lovely to be here. And uh, we're going to read the Scriptures just now. Uh, we're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and the first nine verses of that chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Let's hear the Word of God. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus, for in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. And we know that the Lord will bless the reading of his word. Nowadays, image is the big thing. Whether you're a teenager or experiencing the dreaded midlife crisis, a big question is, how do I look? That's why I suggest cosmetic surgery, fashion, and hairstyling are never out of business, because people want to look good. And so getting a makeover can be the key to a new you. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning, I want to draw your attention to the ultimate makeover, addressing the question, how do I look as a Christian? Or more accurately, how should I look 
as somebody who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. Over the three Sunday mornings that I'm going to be with you uh, here in Windsor in the will of God in September, we're going to develop three related themes from the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. We're thinking about this idea of who I am in Christ, what have I got in Christ, and what has He commissioned me to do. So that's generally where we're going to be going uh, in September. Now, first of all, as we do this, we need to set the context a little. And so I begin this morning with a word about the author. Paul introduces himself as an apostle in verse 1 with divine authority because he says he writes by the will of God. This letter is from the apostle of Christ. And so the Corinthians in their generation needed to listen to what he had to say, and we in the 21st century need to pay attention to the apostle. Then a word about the place. If Athens was the intellectual center of the ancient world, Corinth can be described as its commercial center, situated on a trade route An aristocracy of wealth had sprung up here, and with it a fiercely independent spirit. Corinth was the place that you would come if you wanted to make money and make a name for yourself. It was a center of commerce, but also a center of culture. Corinth in the ancient world was noted for its art and its literature, and perhaps especially for its games. And we are a a society today that is fascinated by sport. And in the ancient world, if you were a sport addict, then you'd have made your way to Corinth at the time of the famous games that were held there in honor of the god of the sea, Poseidon. So a center of commerce and a center of culture. And then, well, I don't usually have alliteration. It just happened this way, uh, a center of corruption. Corinth's wealth had brought with it decadence and immorality, much of it promoted under the guise of religion. The great temple of Aphrodite, known throughout the ancient world, had many priestesses who were actually sacred prostitutes. At evening time, they would come down from the temple, uh, situated on a a great prominent, prominent place in the city. They'd come down from the temple and ply their trade on the streets. The result was that Corinth in the first century had become a byword for evil and immorality. This was ancient Corinth. To this place, the Apostle Paul came with his gospel. One writer says, if the gospel could stand in Corinth, it could stand anywhere, the most unlikely place in all of the Greek world. And here the gospel stood While all around there were many people calling on the names of the gods of Greece and Rome, there was a little community in this city calling on the name of the true God, calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church, not only the author and the place, but what do we know about this church? This was a community which, although it was the Christian church in Corinth, had apparently been radically affected by the atmosphere around them. They had, says Gordon Fee, a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing the patient. 
And this is what the Apostle Paul is attempting to do as he writes this great letter to them. His relationship to them is so strong that he's passionately concerned that they have adopted attitudes and behaviors that require radical surgery. But he doesn't want to kill the patient. He wants to help them. He wants them to develop in their relationship with the Lord. Now, sometimes when you read these New Testament letters, you discover uh, that there is a little key somewhere in the letter to help you understand the central message of it. And 1 Corinthians is no exception. And that key, I suggest, is found right at the end of the letter. And if you've got your Bible, maybe you'd like to uh, grab it again and just look at chapter 15, verse 58. Chapter 15, verse 58. Paul says there, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Uh, And so you can establish from that verse not only what the motivation of the apostle is in writing, but also the the kind of relationship that he has with these people. For example, they are people that he loves, because he says at the beginning of the verse, you are my dear brothers. In other words, he's their spiritual brother. He is, in fact, their spiritual father. So he loves these people. Not only that, he's writing to people who have shifted. They've shifted their position, and so he exhorts them to stand firm. Let nothing move you. And that's an exhortation that you find throughout the Corinthian letters, that he exhorts this church to stand firm. It's a central theme. And not only that, but he's writing to people who have missed the point. And they missed the point in a major way because they imagined that to be spiritual was to possess and exercise brilliant spiritual gifts. They thought that that was the essence of spirituality. And in verse 58, this key at the end of the letter, the apostle brings them back to earth with a bump. Because for Paul, true spirituality is actually hard work. Now, I pause at that point to let that impact on me and also to let it impact on you and the congregation here today because sometimes we get the impression that spirituality is something that's not very tangible. It's difficult to get a hold of. It's a bit like jelly somehow. But spirituality is something that's exhibited by very special people, inverted commas, in the congregation. And Paul wants to cut the ground from underneath that. He says, actually, true spirituality is hard work. So he says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Now, there's lots of work going on here in the church. It's, much of it's recommencing again uh, at this juncture in the year. And already there's lots of hard work going on. I was going to say in the hall at the back, but it's the house, isn't it? Just up the way a little. Uh, uh, and there's lots of hard work going on there just as we are meeting here. Think about junior church and all that's happening there with the children and the, uh, the volunteers. I, I assume they're not paid. They're volunteers who are doing all that hard work this morning. And we need to have them in our minds as we're thinking about the worship of God here. Uh, hard work is involved in being spiritual. To be spiritual is to be intensely practical, to work hard for the sake of the kingdom. 
Now, as the apostle thinks about this new community of saints in Corinth, he is filled with gratitude for what God has done. And as he writes this, he's got a picture in his mind of what these people are like, who they are and what they possess in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're thinking about this morning. So, three things that, that I want to share with you. The first thing that he says about them is they were immeasurably enriched in Christ. And this has happened because of the grace of God mentioned in verse 4. They lived, as we have seen, in the commercial giant of the ancient society. They, th theirs was a, a get-rich society. Their city was filled with people whose lives were dominated by one chief concern, how to make money and enjoy themselves. But here the apostle tells the saints in Corinth that they have already struck it rich. It's an amazing comment. They have already struck it rich. How? Because of the grace of God in Christ. Now, he doesn't elaborate the idea here in the text, but if we're allowed to have a little bit of sanctified speculation, we can say, for example, they have been forgiven. Forgiveness of sins lies at the very heart of being a Christian. That sense of assurance that the Lord has embraced us and forgiven us despite all of our failures and shortcomings. They've been forgiven. They've been adopted into God's family. Previously, they were, as the New Testament puts it elsewhere, aliens and strangers to God and to the Christian community, but now adopted into His family. They've been made members of a new community. A thousand other things besides that are the privileges of being a Christian. And I want to ask you this morning, if you are a Christian here in the congregation, do you ever think of yourself in this way? I have been immeasurably enriched in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul often uses this kind of terminology. For example, in Ephesians, he talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. But the idea of being enriched in or by Christ belongs uniquely to the Corinthian letters. So, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, Jesus Christ became poor so that we, by His poverty, might become rich. It is possible, of course, that this idea of being enriched in Christ was a catchphrase of the Corinthians. They were so obsessed with spiritual gifts that they began to grade these and there were certain gifts that were more important than others, perhaps especially the gift of tongues. Uh, Paul writes a whole chapter devoted to that, of course, in chapter 14. So it may have been that this was a catchphrase of the Corinthians, but reserved only for a special few in the fellowship, the elite in the church. But here the Apostle Paul addresses the whole church, and he says to them, each one of you has been immeasurably enriched in Christ. Now, my friends, this morning, the devil still spreads a great lie. He began to spread it in the Garden of Eden. And that is the idea that God is out to impoverish us. Do you remember how he said to Eve on that occasion? He said, has God really said? Implication, God's a killjoy. God is out to ruin your life. He's going to spoil your fun. You don't need to listen to him. 
Now, I want to say if there is anybody in church this morning who imagines that saying yes to the claims of Jesus on their life will spoil your life and impoverish it, I want to say to you, don't believe that. It's a lie. Instead, take what the apostle says from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that in Christ we are immeasurably enriched. A man called Patrick Henry said on one occasion, I have now disposed of all my income and property to my family. There is one thing more I wish I could give them, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. If I had given them that and they had not a single shilling, they would be rich indeed. And if they had not that and I had given them all the world, they would be greatly impoverished. Now, in particular, as an example of the grace and riches in Christ, the apostle mentions two things. He mentions firstly speech, and then secondly, knowledge. These were the gifts of God's grace that he identifies, and even though in the case of the Corinthians they frequently abused them, still God had given them these gifts. Speech, the word in verse 5 is logos. It probably means something like every kind of spiritual utterance. And then the second word is gnosis, which probably means special knowledge. Now, Paul selects those almost certainly because they were prominent in the church fellowship in Corinth. But in doing this, he doesn't want to emphasize the gifts. He wants to emphasize the giver. What he's trying to do is to redirect their focus. If you'd gone to first century Corinth and bought a copy of Christianity Today or Evangelicals Now in the local Christian bookshop, there would certainly have been something about the church in Corinth in that magazine. But Paul, as we shall see, wants to change their focus. He wants to redirect them in their emphasis away from themselves to God and away from the gifts to the giver. Now, all of that means that you and I should never be demoralized by those who tell us we don't have enough of the Spirit. You sometimes meet people like that. They say to you, well, uh, yeah, you, you need this gift, you, or perhaps by implication. They maybe don't just state it as openly as that, but the implication is that you're somehow second class because you don't do this and you don't possess that. And Paul is saying to us, we're not impoverished because we don't have a particular gift. The truth is we have everything we need in Jesus Christ. We have been enriched in Him in every way. This is who we are. This is what we look like. This is what we are supposed to look like in Jesus Christ, immeasurably enriched in Him. Then secondly, and rather more briefly, you'll be glad to hear, they were eagerly waiting for Christ, not only immeasurably enriched in Christ, but secondly, eagerly waiting for Him. The riches that they enjoyed in Christ were nothing, nothing to the glory that would one day be revealed when Christ would come again. In one sense, they lacked nothing, and yet, in another sense, they lacked everything because Jesus Christ had not come back. In the New Testament, there is this dual emphasis. There is this enormous tension that individual Christians and churches face, lacking nothing if we are in Christ, and yet lacking everything because He has not yet been revealed, immeasurably enriched, and yet eagerly waiting. 
It's the tension between the present and the future, between grace and glory, between faith and sight, between now and then, between the already and the not yet. And so for the Apostle Paul, believers are thoroughly future people. Now, that means, well, perhaps I should uh, phrase it negatively, it, it, it doesn't mean that Christians are people who've got their head in the clouds all the time and that they're of uh, so much spiritually minded or heavenly minded that they're absolutely of no earthly use. That's not what he means. He does mean, however, that their thinking is conditioned and their living is controlled by a hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. We were singing about it earlier. They know that the reality of the future has already begun, and they're still waiting for the final glory. Now, it seems to me that this emphasis on the future, the upward look, is sadly missing in today's evangelical church. There are various reasons for this, I'm sure, uh, but one perhaps is an unhealthy dogmatism about end times. So sometimes you meet people with a very fixed millennial view. In other words, that means simply what their view is of that thousand years in Revelation chapter 20. And they've got such a fixed view that if you don't share that view, you're somehow second class or maybe you've gone off the rails completely. In addition, however, there can sometimes be a reaction against that dogmatism about the millennium that has pushed eschatological matters. That means simply doctrine of the last things, that has pushed those things right down the list of priorities as far as Christians are concerned. So, for example, um, we don't hear many sermons on the second coming. At least that's my experience. I'm sure it's different here in Windsor. You've got such balance here, but uh, uh, this is my impression that we don't hear much uh, about the doctrine of the second coming. And so these two extremes have led to what Millard Erickson, uh, an American theologian, calls eschatomania. In other words, people who are manic about the second coming. Everything is filtered through the grid of the doctrine of last things. They can't think about anything else. And then the opposite extreme are people who are so afraid of that, they've reacted against that so much that they've got eschatophobia. I don't know which category you fit into, but we don't want to fit into either, do we? Because both of these extremes are wrong-headed. They need, need to be avoided by all believers. But it is undeniable that the New Testament, and here the Apostle Paul, has a pronounced future orientation. He is always looking ahead to what is to come. The whole of his life is conditioned by that perspective. So, for example, he says to the Philippians, I press on towards the goal. He's thinking about the finishing tape. And then to the Thessalonians, he says, the day is coming when the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. He's got a future orientation. And that must surely be at the forefront of our minds as we wait for the day of his appearing. This is what we look like. We're not only immeasurably enriched in Christ, but we're also eagerly waiting for Him. And then thirdly, and finally, they were strongly sustained by Christ. As the apostle looks at these Christians in Corinth, as he thinks about them, as he prays for them, he thinks this, you are strongly sustained by Christ. 
Now, that was so important because these Corinthians may well have been asking themselves, well, what lies between the enrichment of verse 5 and the day when Christ is revealed in verse 8? What lies between the two? And the answer that Paul gives to that question is, you're being strongly sustained. The verb that he uses in verse 8, to keep, is the same word that is translated to confirm in verse 6. It was a word that acquired a, a kind of a technical sense in the Hellenistic word. It was used in the legal context to, uh, as a word to guarantee a legal contract. So that's pretty serious. If this was set in stone in the legal framework of the day, and Paul uses this word to describe the way that Christ sustains us, then it's absolutely sure and certain. So just as Jesus Christ confirmed Paul's testimony of the gospel in the Corinthians, so also he will confirm or strongly sustain them to the end. Thus the apostle in his thanksgiving for the Corinthian believers sets a sure foundation under their feet. Now, as you read on through 1 Corinthians, you can't help but discover that there are times when the apostle strongly rebukes them. In fact, if, uh, apart from Galatians, perhaps, of any of the letters, the apostle has strong rebuke for these believers in Corinth. Thessalonica is uh, the opposite end of the scale. Nearly everything he says to them is absolutely positive. But he's going to say a lot of tough stuff to the Corinthians. And yet, and yet, he wants them to be assured that they are secure in God's love and care. Now, in my experience, this assurance is one of the greatest needs of my heart. You said to me, but Paul told us earlier that you were in pastoral work for 20 years and you've been in the college now for whatever length of time, and I thought you'd have it cracked. No, I make mistakes, say stupid things, do stupid things. My wife tells me often, you need a critic like that. And I haven't got it cracked. So much about the Christian life and about relating to one another that I, I make a mess of at times. Anybody like that here? You with me? Yeah, we're all together in this struggle, aren't we? Absolutely. And what we need is this assurance that even though we fall and fail, we've got the assurance of knowing that Christ is strongly sustaining us. Now, you may say to me this morning, I don't feel very strongly sustained just at this point. As I came to church this morning, I didn't feel like that, and I still don't. In fact, if anything, you may say, I feel abandoned. Well, if that's the case, let me tell you a story to illustrate this. Watchman Nee talks about a new convert who came to see him in great distress on one occasion. The new convert said this, no matter how much I pray, no matter how hard I try, I can't seem to stay faithful to God. I'm always making a mess of it. I don't think I'm a Christian at all. Watchman Nee said, come into this back room in the house. And he took the person into the back room, and there was a dog. And he said, you see this dog? This is my dog. He said, I'm very proud of this dog. It's been well-trained. It is wonderfully obedient. It never makes a mess. It does everything I tell it to do. 
So the person said, yeah, okay. And then he took the person and said, come into this other room. And here was a little baby. And he said, see this little baby? This baby is my son. He's not very well trained yet. He makes a mess. He throws his food around. He fouls his clothes, makes lots of mistakes. But let me ask you this. Who is going to inherit my kingdom? Is it the dog or my son? It's my son. So he said, you are Jesus Christ's heir because it is for you that he died. My friends, this morning, we are the heirs of Christ, not because of our perfection, which is not real. It can only be imagined if we think like that. We are not the heirs of Christ through our perfection. We are the heirs of Christ by means of His grace. That's all. That's where our assurance lies. Now, as we close, I want to draw your attention to something that is striking that you can see on the screen behind me. And that is that in this whole section, the Apostle Paul describes the church in Corinth in terms of the three tenses of salvation, the past, the present, and the future. And it seems to me that all of us, and I include myself, find it difficult to balance living in those three tenses. So some of us, for example, are always looking back to the past. Our testimony is an account of distant events long ago. We have little to say about our experience of Christ today. We forget somehow that He has put a new song in our mouths and that we're looking forward to the day when He comes. We're looking back all the time to the past. Then there are others, and they make the opposite mistake, and they're preoccupied with the future. They are the avid students of prophecy, the eschatomaniacs, trying to interpret the signs of the times, putting the pieces of the prophetic jigsaw puzzle together. But they may not be so sure, actually, of the blessing of Christ today, because they're preoccupied with His revelation in the future. And then, of course, in the third place, there are those who are obsessed with the present. They are the now generation not really worried about the past or the future, but only with the now. They can't see beyond the end of their noses. Today is all that counts. And is it not the case that we need to learn from Paul's letter to the Corinthians that the Christian life is a balance of all three perspectives, the past, the present, and the future? So John Stott says, there are three terms that we must get integrated into our thinking, the already, the not yet, and the meanwhile. Says Stott, say to yourself, already I have been enriched in Christ, and be thankful. But not yet has Christ been revealed, which should make me look forward to the future with eagerness. Meanwhile, between the two, Christ is sustaining me, granting me fellowship with Himself, and helping me to fulfill my duties with confidence. So for the Corinthians, and for us today, this integration of the three perspectives, already, not yet, meanwhile, these are the things that enable us to live authentically as the people of God in our generation. This is who we are. This is what we look like as we worship and witness for God in the church and in the world. Let us pray together.
Father, we pray that you will forgive us when we've fallen for the lie that being a Christian has impoverished us. In fact, as the apostle reminds us today, we've been greatly enriched in Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray, to dwell upon those riches, to enjoy them, to celebrate them. And then as we think about all that you've given to us, we pray that you'll help us to think about how we have a responsibility to exercise all that you've given to us, to share with others, to be those who are real and authentic in our community, in the church, in society. Help us, we pray, to live with this great balance in our lives and in our thinking, the already, the not yet, and the still to come. Oh God, we pray that you will write your word on our hearts and unite us, we pray, in fellowship in that struggle together today to live more like Jesus in the days to come. Bless the church here, we pray, as this work recommences now uh, for the next number of months. We pray that there might be a sense of the Lord here and that there might be a sense of the work going forward with the blessing of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.